Hello, and welcome to New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha Ross. This is Sunday, June 26th. Welcome to all our listeners and to our special guest today, Dr. Gladys uh, Smith. So before we get into it, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Smith's uh, extensive background in history. So we'll have a lot of good conversation today. Dr. Gladys Smith is an integrative somatic trauma therapist and licensed psychotherapist. She is an approved clinical supervisor, certified clinical mental health counselor, and master addiction counselor. Dr. Smith served 27 years in the United States Navy, retiring as a hospital uh, corpsman, chief petty officer. Dr. Smith has obtained a doctorate in clinical psychology from California Southern University, a master of education from the University of Missouri, and a master of health science from Washington University. She is a trauma therapist, sexual assault advocate at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University School of Counseling Psychology in Malibu, California. Dr. Smith also operates a private practice in St. Louis, Missouri, with a focus of trauma and mood disorders to include addiction. She is also a national and international presenter and group facilitator on the topics of mental health, wellness, and racial trauma. She is certified in trauma, EMDR, um, consultant in training. She is also trained in somatic experiencing, brain spotting, dialectical uh, behavioral therapy or DBT and trauma-focused yoga, as well as emotional emancipation, healing circles, and meditation. Dr. Smith, you are doing it all. So you are, how are you doing today? I'm tired after hearing that. Oh my God. <laughs> well, thank you for all you do. And our community definitely needs it in terms of healing from trauma. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So we've talked in you know, great detail about psychotherapy, training for it, you know, how to shop for a therapist, the importance of mental health treatment, um, mental health disorders being on a spectrum. Today, what we're going to lean in on is definitely having you talk with us about your work with survivors of trauma and specifically trauma-focused work. So let's begin with just a definition. Can you define trauma for us and talk with us about distinct types of traumas? Yeah, it's so many definitions. Um, so one definition I like to use with, so I'm gonna give you uh, several and then we can you know, piece that apart. So okay. people always get it mixed up. It's like, oh, trauma, I had trauma, I had trauma, I had trauma. So trauma is the event. You know, trauma is not what happens to a person, but what happens on the inside. What happens after an injury, an emotional injury has happened, and it's an unhealed wound. Another definition that people use is too much, too fast, too soon, and then there's no way to discharge it. It's a stagnant thing. You stay stuck in the memory. Another definition, a way of looking at it, non-clinical, of course, but we use it clinically, is an, something that happened to an individual that they feel that it's happening right here and right now. Mm -hmm. They stay stuck in the past, stuck in their brain and stuck in their body. You know, experiencing over and over and over again. One of the things, uh, one type of trauma is acute, that, that acute traumatic stress where a person, that's a normal response. Somebody having a normal response to something abnormal happening to them. A big boom. And of course you're going to drop. You're going to jump. You know, something you see, uh, one individual told me that they saw an individual jump or fall off of a bridge or, you know, it was, 
it was like, oh my God, that person just acute in the moment, didn't know that it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Someone grabbing you, someone hitting, an acute stress reaction is one, one form. Then there is the cumulative, where you have multiple events of stress. And you know what they say? They say a person that has had one traumatic event, especially if it's of a se- sexual nature, they will have multiple events because they are- Unfortunately. Their boundaries, they don't have the boundaries. That detector of safeness is gone. Feeling safe and being safe are gone for that person. But it is different for every person. Then there is the type of PTSD or the type of trauma that has a dissociative state to it. Not everybody has that, where they dissociate. They mm-hmm. miss times of their life. They miss times of the day. They miss times of the week. They go away and they kind of go into what's called a trance. We call it that trance state. Mm-hmm. Then the one that's most popular that people are talking about today and that we know about is complex PTSD. And, you know, and complex PTSD includes things like childhood trauma, childhood mm-hmm. neglect, domestic violence, uh, social stressors. Mm-hmm leads us to two others, developmental and racial. Okay. Now, race-based stress trauma, and we're going to talk about that. I know we, we said we'd talk a little bit about that one. I won't, yes. I won't spoil, the, spoil our question on that. <laughs> but the other one is developmental. Remember, like, I don't know if you guys remember, but the adverse childhood experiences, a lot yes, of people- ACEs. That. But even before that, Chester Pierce talked about microaggressions and, mm-hmm. you know, and then they talked about race-based stress in mm-hmm. the 70s. So it's not new, but those are some of the types. And then, of course, the most prolific is if you've been in some type of war or, or the trauma of mm-hmm. war. Yes, you know? combat-related, war-related um, yeah. Stress. I, I understand that because I work with veterans and, and that's on the end of if you're a veteran in combat, but then we also have civilians who have been exposed, like being in war torn um, climates. Also too, Dr. Ross, is that not to forget because a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you were only the clerk, like to a lot of our guys that were clerks or dispatchers, or they worked in the morgue or they were, they're like, oh, you did, you weren't on the front line. Oh my God, yes. You know, yes. the research shows that those individuals have more incidents of PTSD than those oftentimes that were on the front line. Because yes, it's because it's a different type of exposure. And also when you think about the mind and preparation, those who may be going into infantry or, or frontline, they they are they're preparing for it. So oh, although there can be trauma within it, there's a preparation. But yes. being in other places and then being a bystander to traumas yes it's definitely internalized in that like what we call the moral type of injury yes um, you see it every day at the veterans hospital i'm sure you see it every day every day i do now i I know what you're talking about (laughs) yes i love that you broke down you know just different type of definitions and what you know not necessarily just the clinical textbook so people can hear and understand because sometimes the word trauma may be used for Mm -hmm. something that isn't necessarily defined as clinical Mm -hmm. trauma. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not a distressing event, but Mm -hmm. also what we have to recognize about trauma is that these are usually incidents that should be Um, they're categorized differently. And that's what makes it trauma. You know, there has to be some threat to you, to one's life or bodily integrity. And if it's not to one's own body 
or life, it's to someone else and being witnessed. So community violence, as you talk later about race-based stress and trauma, that's something to think about urban trauma, that mm -hmm. we have war zones right here at, at, at home. So in a lot of black and brown neighborhoods, lower um, socioeconomic areas, there's a lot of crime. So keeping in mind that, that that's trauma. Mama, yeah. oh, see, people don't even get that. People, they heard you say that, and it's that's trauma. That oh, yeah. that's just how they live. That's just how people are. They should be yes. And so, and so many of our community members are untreated because of that because they're undiagnosed you know, untreated and they don't have the tools that they need. So the purpose of this show is definitely one to decrease stigma, particularly within Black communities, but then also to educate, you know, psychoeducation to really understand what's going on. How do I know when I need help? So we've talked a lot um, about different, we've had psychologists, social workers, so we understand that level of training. Tell us about your specialized training for the work you do with trauma because there's different type of modalities. So what are some of the trainings you've done specialized to trauma? Well, what I really appreciated was I love being in the military. I miss it. I retired. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Yeah, I miss it. But what, you know what I miss? I miss that training, baby. We got trained. I got trained by Bissell Vanderkop on trauma way back. Oh, in wow. Wonderful. Yes. That's premier training. Yes. Uh, I got specialized training with David Burns on cognitive behavioral. I did healing trauma with Peter Levine. One of the, the trainings that I got that led me up to, to learn about trauma was just my training as a medic. I started out as a medic and I would see gunshot wounds, people overdosing. And okay, so Doc. Physical aspect. I got to deliver at least three babies. They I didn't oh. want to. Mama didn't want to, but we weren't. We, it was in the Philippines. I was stationed in the Philippines and uh, okay. all three were in an ambulance. So that's where I got the body part. And the trauma part came in is dealing with all of the result of what people had experienced. The other trainings that I have, I got training from a sister. Her name is Natita Gisell. And if you ever need any training on, on race-based trauma and yoga she's the girl it's called trauma conscious yoga that would be something for people to, to take a look at I went to the embody lab and they have so much training but I did a a, a what's called a uh, traumatic uh, integrative training I did that I did when I did my master's my bachelor's was in healthcare management because I, I thought okay I'm gonna manage this I'm gonna get make sure that people know what to do and mm -hmm. I found out I was better with 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 working with the people um, okay. And then I did uh, what's called a training called Warriors at Ease. Now that helped me with mind and body and trauma because okay. it recognized that warriors were going through pain, but their families too. Yes. Families were going through. So I got to learn the ins and outs of physio physiological and psychological. I took training in somatic experiencing. I took training mm -hmm. in, in brain spotting. And my favorite was I did training in EMDR, but my favorite, 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 I think, had, so far has been somatic experiencing and my yoga and the combination of uh, sexual okay. trauma, addiction. So it's like a triangle that I work with. And I love it because it's all connected. Uh, trauma, you know, uh, any type of addiction, mm -hmm. and then specifically any type of sexual trauma and mood disorders that go along with that. Okay. So that's a lot. So for our listeners, we're going to break it down one area at a time. So to start, let's start with EMDR. Can you let our listeners know what EMDR stands for? And that is a very specialized training for trauma. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've, I've done others like prolonged exposure therapy, which I don't like because I don't like exposing people to a trauma. Mm-hmm. But EMDR is a brain-based uh, type of, of treatment. Now, some people use it as an instrument, but it, it can be a full treatment and it depends on the therapist. So we have top-down treatment where you talk about it, cognitive behavior therapy and all that kind of stuff. And then that's where the mm-hmm. medication comes in too. But bottom up is the body. And so mm-hmm. EMDR combines both of those. It's an eight-phase, brain-based, body-based treatment. The and, eight- EMD- and EMDR stands for? Eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Thank and you. what the eyes do, what the lady that developed it was Francine Shapiro. And so she decided it was like 87, somewhere in there. Got training from her too, military pay for everything, um, is that she had many multiple incidents that had happened. She went to a park and she started to watching the ducks going back and forth and back and forth. And she realized, whew, over days, she started to feel better. Mm. She brought up negative cognitions. Then the positive cognitions came up and she started looking. So she went to the lab. It is the most studied type of therapy because people are like, hokey pokey. Yeah, look at your eyes, you know, but it really actually does because it goes to the subcortical part of the brain, the reptilian brain, past the limbic system Mm -hmm. and into the insular part where you think and feel. Now, the eight phases that a therapist will go through with the person include a history taking. We take the history, Mm -hmm. we, we prep the client and guess what? We prep them with somatic experiencing, breathing, noticing. Mm -hmm feeling, we do an assessment for their history of of trauma. We do the desensitization. We find out what's a negative cognition and a positive cognition. We do what's called an installation. That's five. And then six, we do a body scan. We close for that session at seven. And then the eighth part is we come back and we reevaluate. And we do what's called a future template. Now that you have processed that memory. So the reason that you do EMDR is to move it from one part of the brain that's stuck. It's stuck because you keep feeling Mm -hmm. the same way. You keep thinking about it. We call it rumination of thought, but rumination of feeling too. So -hmm. what EMDR does is goes down to that subcortical part and it helps you move it to another part. And then guess what? You start to process it because you can feel it. But before that remember in the second part we prepped the client we taught them how to breathe mm-hmm. how to relax how to ground and then yes. that's where they go and so hopefully typically some people have one or two sessions some people have six sessions some people have eight sessions it all depends on that person's resilience factor and their window of tolerance and they may have just had one memory but they may have six memories but you know the thalamus the hypothalamus and the amygdala the alarm system hold on to that it may be five connected together that you move to a different part of the brain, mm-hmm. learn to breathe and you let it go. And they all may just move, but then you may have to do another session. And we may use cognitive behavior therapy for that. Or we may use a little bit more somatic experiencing. But what we want to do is to reduce, instead of a trauma being right here in a person's front part of their mm-hmm. face, we move it so that it is a part of them, but it doesn't yes. drive them around. That's the purpose yes. of it. Yes, being a, and that's the empower. That's what I love about trauma work is that empowering piece because the way our brains work, that's what I always tell clients is that we can't, 
you know, erase things from the brain. That's why re-experiencing happens. And, you know, the amygdala, you know, it's so powerful in terms of, of storing emotional content. But what, as you said, you can do is like change that drive, you know, navigate a little bit differently where it doesn't seem like living through that hyper arousal all of the time, the fight, the fight or flight. So thank you for breaking that down because some listeners may have never heard of EMDR, you know, trauma exposure, CPT, cognitive processing therapy. <laughs> we, we tend to hear about that a little bit more. So EMDR is definitely um, a great option in terms of trauma throw, work. I wanted to throw a shout out also to that. A lot of the stuff that I'm talking about, like somatic experiencing and um, brain spotting and EMDR here, right here in St. Louis, we're starting, we're having BIPOC EMDR, BIPOC somatic experience, wonderful BIPOC brain spotting, specifically for us, given by us, and yes. treatment with us. So yes. be on the lookout for all of those, but it's specifically BIPOC, and um, it, it is so important that we get that because typically we wouldn't get EMDR because, mm-hmm. you know, because typically it was only trained um, majority clinicians who had it. We yes. couldn't afford it. Black clinicians, let's be honest, couldn't afford it. I could afford it. I was in the military. They paid for it. I was interested in doing it. And I learned it. Even with cross-racial providers, unfortunately, we know that the research shows us that that's some of the challenge is that BIPOC clients and patients, they don't all, they're not always offered the same types of treatments, of course, for bias, bias and different reasons. So it's important that we do have BIPOC clinicians and providers who can also weave it into education. So I'm very um, thankful you're here to talk about that. So that's the EMDR piece. Now you also do the trauma-informed yoga. You know, we hear a lot about traditional psychotherapy, which may be couch time, coming in talk therapy but I love that you're bringing in movement. So in addition to the traditional, tell me about the adjusting trauma through like the movement. So actually the, the yoga part of it or the movement part of our trauma uh, solution or uh, trauma-focused yoga, it's called so many different things, but actually it's the same thing. It's in vibratory language. It, it empowers an individual because typically in a class, they're like, uh, do this, then do this, then go there. The language is different. And it's sort of like a five-star, they call it a five-star. I invite you, if you'd like, mm-hmm. consider changing. So the yoga, the trauma-sensitive, trauma-focused yoga allows that person to choose what they want to do. And, but the main thing is to notice what their body is feeling. What are they feeling in the body? We ask them to move in a certain way or invite them and to stay there if they'd like to stay there. But the main thing is to know that they have the power, first, the awareness, bring up awareness in their body. And second, mm-hmm. that they have choice and they have power yes. and agency with their own body. Yes. And so trauma so powerful. It's not just for individuals that have had a sexual trauma, a racial trauma as all as well. And the, how we do it for uh, racialized trauma is yoga as a peace practice. The Association of uh, Black Yoga Therapists came here eh, two years ago, and that's Gail Parker. She wrote that book, Restorative Yoga and Ethnic mm-hmm. and Race-Based Stress. So she, we, she taught us that as well. Not so different from trauma-sensitive, but it's with an ethnic flair to it. It makes sure that you understand your history as a Black person 
and Mm -hmm. where you might have not even noticed that you were inflicted with a wound, like you said, that moral injury, that Mm -hmm. wound of oppression, that wound of marginalization, that wound of microaggressions. Yoga, trauma-sensitive, or yoga as a peace practice allows you to notice it, contain it, and that's the main thing, contain Mm -hmm. it. Notice that you do have a choice to respond or not to, to respond, and then respond. And that is powerful as you talk about being in the body because the body remembers. That's one of the main hallmarks of trauma is that even if not thinking on a conscious level about it, the body remembers and senses it. So that difficulty like with self-blame, trust, power and control. I love that you're making a safe space where, as you said, there's that agency, there's power. I can choose what I want to do, you know, what a person wants to do, do with their body. So that is, is, is very, um, healing. And I, this is what I want listeners to understand because TV never, or movies never do a great job of depicting what therapy light is like, and it misses so much. So we've talked about traditional talk therapy. We've talked about, you know, first, second, and third wave types, you know, psychoanalysis moving up to like now CBT, um, mindfulness, DBT. So now this adds, like you said, the somatic piece to it, the, the movement. Yeah. Incorporating that. Okay. And then, you know, it's real important for black and brown people, as you say, too, because over time, over history, you know, our grandmother, our mom touches our back. Her mom Mm -hmm. touches her back. Mm -hmm. We get all of that. We've got all that cortisol. You know, we have the high rates of our our ACEs score. It's a whole nother, that's a whole nother show, ACEs in black and brown communities, because our ACEs are so high and so in tune. That's why we have the obesity rate. Our bodies are built that way because of yes. the cortisol level, because of how our insulin level, how our kidneys have developed. And mm-hmm. over time, we make unhealthy food choices, which were already made for us by our great, great, great grandmother and yes. great grandfather. And then we have, we die a lot earlier, 10 to 15 years earlier mm-hmm. often if we don't check on our health. If we don't lower that cortisol, if we don't mm-hmm. learn to just breathe, if you don't want to do the movements, what I, people used to tell me is, well, I'm Baptist. I can't do yoga. And I was like, okay, but what does that mean? What does Baptists have to do? Because they think of Buddhism. They think of right. being a Buddhist and all it is is movement. And you know how I trick them? I'm like, well, just sit there. And as we're moving, I want you to just breathe. So yeah. yoga has two parts. The pranayama is the breath. which is the most powerful part. And the asana is the movement. And so Mm -hmm. they're doing yoga and they don't even know it. And they're Baptist. Right. And it doesn't, and and I love that you bring that out. I educate too, because sometimes (laughs) people feel like it's in conflict with their belief, but it's that it doesn't have to be a changing for some. Yes. Yoga is truly a part of philosophy and a part of how they live, move and breathe. And then for other times, it doesn't have to be necessarily going deep into the philosophy. But as you said, that breath and movement and just looking at the science in terms of the research that, yes, people have been saying it for centuries that it is helpful. Mm-hmm. And the, the science is showing it, the research shows, I mean, and particularly in our community, hypertension. Yep. Cardiovascular disease, cancer, breast cancer, cancer, stroke, um, anxiety, depression, racial trauma, as we said, so yoga becomes beneficial. Mindfulness becomes beneficial in terms of helping to decrease all of these conditions. 
Wonderful. Thank you for that detailed, you know, um, explanation of, of the type of work you do. So we met, we talked a little bit earlier about racial trauma, and I'd like us to talk a little bit more about that. We've talked about it in previous shows. What mm-hmm. I'd like us to share, you to share today is specifically like working with your clients of color, particularly Black clients. Talk with us about your culturally sensitive approach mm-hmm. for healing from racial trauma. For me, one of the first things in... Um, any individual that comes in and specifically my black and brown people that come in and um, is, can you tell me about incidents where we talk about oppression? I talk about, and I talk about prejudice and talk about, have mm-hmm. always talked about, and they're like, why are you talking about that? I came in to talk about my boy, about my boyfriend, about this, or about <laughs> that. And I said, well, to do a full assessment, I have to look at everything, right? And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Have you ever felt time where you've been marginalized? What's marginalized? Felt like it didn't matter. People ever follow you around in a store? You ever been microaggressed? Yes. How did that make you mm-hmm. feel? What did you do with that? What do you do over time with that? How many times did yeah. that happen? So doing a cultural assessment of mm-hmm. what type of incidents they have had. Have you lost a job? Have you not gotten a job? So the first part for me is to do a, a thorough assessment of what their feelings are about being Black and Brown and how that has impacted them physically and mentally. And then we get to yeah, you know, that does relate to how I feel and why I came in here. It, it's thorough because you bring it into the room, you know, and as I work with trainees, we talk about race in the room as well as other group identities in the room. But if as a provider, you don't bring it up, sometimes the client, the patient doesn't know, like, is this something I should talk about? As well as something could be on the pre-subconscious or the deeper conscious level. Hmm. But we understand that the unconscious motivates and drives behaviors so as you said when you bring it up like no I'm gonna talk about my boyfriend but when all of this comes up it's like oh well maybe that's why sometimes I feel angry or irritated and I I just don't even know why or I don't have energy you know I feel tired or fatigued a lot of the time but then they'll ask sometimes they'll ask well well, why you ask me about that then you well what about what about your boyfriend oh he's white Okay, this is good that we're talking about this. Let's let's continue on. How uh, you know, and and so it really does matter how you if you're the only one at work. So I'll do the assessment, and then we talk a little bit about that. And then then sometimes that's where the psychoeducation piece comes in because mm-hmm. just because people are of color doesn't mean that they know the full experience or understand that the full experience. Mm-hmm. You know, remember that that speech, and even with ABCI, they talk about somebody told a lie today. Martin Luther King's speech is that we're inferior, we're, we're not good enough, mm-hmm. we're not smart enough, we can't do that, we can't do that. So we do a little bit of history, we do a little yes. bit of psychoeducation and a history, just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Then I challenge them. Now I challenge them to uh, read Resma Manaka's book. And we use some of the practices in the book, talking about how racial trauma, racialized trauma, uh, and I did, you know, I, I bring that up because I did a whole year long training with him and now I'm doing another training with him. But this book helps my clients and me address the cultural aspect of them being who they mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. And then we, then we talk about the trauma or whatever else that they brought in, knowing that they are seen, yes. that they are heard and yes. that they are validated. validated. Yes, that so, is so important. I mean, that right there leads to treatment outcomes that regardless of like what style of therapy you're using, because it's so many 
like schools of thoughts, right? But in those schools of thought, if like with racial trauma, if you don't have that validation, then there isn't healing um, in that sense. And because we can't, unlike the other events we talked about, right? Like combat, you can leave a combat zone, you know, but uh, but racial trauma, you can't escape because as long as you're living and breathing, you're going to have these experiences while being Black. So we have to find ways to ground ourselves. And that's what all of the research shows is that a positive, healthy racial racialization as racial identity is going to be our best buffer to protect us against racial discrimination because it's going to come right it's like you know the storm is coming you can't (laughs) stop the storm but you got to hunker down right so what 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 can you what can you do so and this is it again building that healthy sense of Mm -hmm. self Yes. And so you can't even get to the empowerment without them realizing that, you know, I see you, I know what I understand you, I I hear you what you're saying. And now, what do you how do you want to be seen? How do you want to be heard? Give them the choice. We talk about that. And then we start into the treatment of going into the body and finding out how these things have impacted them. And so uh, that's where my somatic experiencing comes in with them. We go and a lot of times people think that trauma therapy or any type of therapy is like I said talking about it talk 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 that's <laughs> only and I have my little brain here somewhere but oh it's around here I always show on the brain I have a little diagram a little oh here it is I have a little di- uh little model of the brain and I tell them you know when we do this talking therapy it's up here it's way up here in the, in the top part you know of the brain that neo part but we need to get down deep we need to get down deeper. So I want you to feel it. And sometimes with brain spotting and somatic experiencing, you're not going to talk about it, but I just want you to tell me what you feel. Where do you yeah. feel tension in your body? Yes. Man, Dr. Ross, it, it, I, you know, just as well as I, is that it is so amazing when people slow down first, you know, they say that in the Bible, your grandmother told you that, mama told you that, just be still. Just be still and being still and noticing your body. And we do what's called pendulation and titration is where mm-hmm. pendulate, go up and down and titration, you move it higher and lower. Where do you feel good in your body? Tell me what that feels like. So you, they know what feeling good inside their body feels like. And now, mm-hmm. now let's go down to where you don't feel so good. And let's go yes. back up to where you feel. What color is that part that, that, that doesn't feel good? What color is that part? Okay, let's take some breath. And then amazingly enough, once they're validated, they're heard and they're seen and they Mm -hmm. start to notice where these feelings are connected in their body. When I feel angry, my chest is so tight. My Mm -hmm. stomach stomach starts to have to go to the bathroom all the time. So as they start to become aware of that, they start to feel better about themselves and understand that there's nothing wrong with them. Mm And, and while, and sorry to interrupt, but while this is helpful, I think for any client, I think particularly for BIPOC clients, it's important because culturally, sometimes there can be that feeling like talked out, as you said, I don't want to talk about that. But, and then there's also a sense of empowerment in movement. Like it feels like there's a level of empowerment, there's resistance, I'm doing something. So we see that with BIPOC clientele, this is something that, you know, many gravitate to because the traditional form of psychotherapy works well for many. 
But then for some, they either need more, it's not sufficient, or they need something else. You know, you read my mind too with that, because the next part that I asked him, well, as you're noticing that, that feeling, I noticed that you raised your hand. What happens when you raise your hand? You know what we do? We move the hand like in minute movement, because when you slow the movement down, Mm-hmm. sometimes you'll start to notice people will start burst out crying or they'll burst out laughing mm-hmm. they'll keep moving because it's the repetition slow of that movement where before we're caught to we're taught to override our feelings oh yeah that's just feeling i feel it but when you yeah. start to slow it down and no words no words were expressed it's what you felt in your body as you move mm-hmm. because sometimes when you move in certain ways it's a protection a self-defense And as you slow it down, that's what somatic experiencing does, you start to feel and the feelings start to come up. And then people are like, okay, I never would have believed it, but this is what happened. Yeah, it it works. Therapy and I feel better. (laughs) You're like, what is this? I moved my arm and I'm feeling better. I think you're (laughs) going to be getting a lot of calls at the end when you share your information. (laughs) it, It matters. It matters. All of that stuff matters. It does. So one of the highlights of of the show is also that we have the opportunity for um, questions to be texted. So we do have an opportunity to interface with the audience. So we do have a question for you. When when there are mass shootings, one of the first first things people say is mental illness is the problem. However, when a black man robs a store or shoots someone, he's just a thug and a criminal, and there's no consideration given to the trauma that we face every day in our communities. Can you speak to how that is and or should be viewed, explored, researched, et cetera? Great question. It has been. That's one of those five faces of oppression, you know, Mm -hmm. exploitation, invalidation, marginalization, you know, minimization, and then the violence part. Oh, they're just violent. The same thing we watched Katrina. I remember that we watched Katrina Mm -hmm. and it was a a guy getting diapers and a young black man getting diapers and some bread. And then he went and got the diapers and bread. And then uh, or it was of the majority. Yeah. And then the same, another color individual, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. of color, did it. Oh, my God. He's getting diapers for the baby. <laughs> so that is oppression, prejudice. And we, yeah. have, to, we have to call it out. Research mm-hmm. is continually being done. But until we start to address it and call it out and say, yeah. This is not acceptable. Yeah, It's not going to change. And the mass shootings, the first thing that they do say, whether they're black and brown mm-hmm. or over another culture, is that it, it's always pointed at mental illness. That might not yeah. be. Which, which leads to stigma too. And as a psychologist, I'm sure you feel this way. I become so upset when I hear that because there's millions of people in the world living with mental health disorders and they do not predict crimes. And oftentimes socio-demographic factors are more so the um, events that are likely gonna predict crime. So many, they've looked at many of like mass shooters over time and many of them do not fit into any 
one clean mental health category or with Buffalo or what happened in the Carolinas in terms of racial events, that's not a mental illness. If someone has a racist ideology and they intend to kill people, right. Or like with the AAPI community, Asian, if you are attacking someone because they're, there's no mental illness illness. (laughs) that goes along with that the fifth leg of, of oppressive thought, uh, you know, racist thinking is that it's all it's all about violence and that violence is related to mental illness. But it's like 1%, I think, or 2% of individuals with mental health issues that do uh, involve themselves in some type of danger. Or That's not a lot of percentages. That means that all of the other people are not violent. And violence, and there's no true studies that show that those individuals and of the mass shootings and of the things that have occurred mm-hmm. that they, and, and, you know, so interesting uh, in the last two shootings, they were trying to prove it that each person was, and the guy said, we can't find anything where this person had a mental illness. Yeah. See, that's where two things. I think the community, Hey community, listen up. There's a couple of classes you can take for free that you can bring to your church. You can bring to wherever mm-hmm. you are group you in, the big whiz group you in at the bar, wherever. It's it's uh, stress first aid and psychological first aid. They're free yes. classes. You can bring them. You you know, Department of Mental Health puts them out. One person can go to the training. Doesn't matter if you're a therapist, not a therapist, you know, mm-hmm. a barber, a beautician, yes. you know, whatever you want to be, you can be that and go on the Department of Mental Health site, learn to pull down the slide, learn all about the mm-hmm. information and, and do a class. If we all yes. had psychological first aid, then yes. mental health first aid class, psychological first aid is free. Go on the website and take mm-hmm. the class for yourself. So we educate ourselves and we understand, oh, okay, I get it. So and the it, depart, Department of Mental Health, so we got to um, uh, Department of Health, uh-huh. psychological first aid, and then the other one that is awesome is stress first aid. And I actually, because I was trained in that one. And we will work to get that onto um, our website too on um, the Intentional Talk Radio Network so that we will have that, that will be good. available. And it's, and it's a free class, yep. There's two, two. one is for psych- psychological first, stress first aid for healthcare workers. If you're a healthcare worker and it's free, and then there's one, psychological first aid. Yep. Helping others in times of stress. That's all it is. And, and thank you for that thoughtful response because, you know, I was just having a conversation today and, and talking about that racial prejudice, racial discrimination. You know, sometimes it isn't always the presence of something it's the absence right it's the absence of equity so like often as you said with mass shootings if you have a white shooter often you won't hear immediately like the race within the description you will just hear a description whereas like if you have a black person black male black female um we also will Right. We also will be immediately vilified. You know, unfortunately, with the killing of Mike Brown, you hear everything being dredged up from the past about that individual to try to justify, you know, the killing. However, when Sandy Hook happened, what happened to cause such, you know, an upstanding young man to, you know, so again, you see that inequity in terms of even the opportunity to just be human. You know, there's automatically going to being 
villainized, even though within our communities, we have a historical base of being dehumanized. Then we have a present experience of being dehumanized, but yet we are not given the same, the, the equity there in terms you know, of how they interface with our community. One of the things that stands out for me, and, and I, 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 I've learned now to not let it get to me so bad, but it was a picture of the young man who went to the first mother church in California and shot the nine individuals in, in, in the church. So they took him before taking him to jail to get something to eat. Mm -hmm. I just cannot, I cannot. Where the, in, the, in the next incident that had happened, a black brother was shot and killed. So we, we continue to have an issue. We continue Unfortunately. to not. And, and, and when that's brought up, I think her when someone say, well, actually that's written somewhere that that's an option, but again, it's being given that option. So to be alive, have, to right, hamburger. Mass shootings where you know people have been killed or harmed, the person is taken alive. However, you know, a black young man walking with Skittles in the pocket that someone has implicit bias to feel like, oh, it may be a weapon, they get killed. Or Tamar Rice, was that in, was that um, Detroit or Michigan where it was like the toy gun? So again, the toy gun. Yeah. not having the time to take and assess the context and the situation that in the black and brown community. Nobody has a red gun. What is it, a red gun? A little red toy gun? I mean, unfortunately, it's it's so sad that that this is what's happening. But these are the conversations that we have to have. But I love that you gave the tool Department of Health, stress first psychological first aid. We're going to get that up on there because we need to heal us for us by us because we can't wait for other people to do that. There are certain things within our community we have to do for ourselves, not reparations. Yes, the government can work on that to give to our people. But in terms of racial healing, these are things that we have to do. Yes, you don't have to wait. You do it in your community center, your, your church. Do it in your yes. family. Um, yes. Teach the we, kids so, and then they can teach their, while they play in house and doctor and everything else, they can, they can teach each other um, psychological first aid, stress right. first aid. How to breathe. How and to then breathe. It, intergenerationally now we are building the skill, the skill level. Love it. Love it. So we, we do have, um, thank you for that thoughtful response to that question. We have one more um, question, which is, is trauma like rape ever resolved? <sighs> Happy question, huh? Yeah, because... You know, what really depends, not even a heavy question, but it's so different. It's like that window of tolerance. We all have different um, post-traumatic growth factors, which means mm -hmm. that we all have different resilience factors. And for some people, the resolution may be uh, resolving the symptoms that they have. I don't have flashbacks anymore. I don't mm -hmm. think about the, the incident every day. Okay. And that is mm -hmm. healing. So where they can be in a relationship, maybe they can trust because they might have been so closed off that they now are able to be in a relationship. Oh, so they're 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 able to be intimate with another individual. But first mm -hmm. of all, they're able to be intimate with themselves and mm -hmm. understand and feel okay. So the answer to that is yes and yes. 
and it depends on the individual. It really yeah. does. And what they're ready for. So we have that, you know, now the, the vagus nerve, which is the network nerve, runs through the body, tells everybody, hey, heart, I'm okay. Hey, lungs, I'm okay. And then yeah. the ability to be able to network with other people. When when yes. survivors can integrate with other people mm-hmm. and healing has occurred. So it's so different for every person. So mm-hmm. not a hard question, but a question that's so different for each individual because treatment looks different for each person. Yes. It has the same components, you know, you stabilize them, you help them understand, you help mm-hmm. have resources for them, and then you start the treatment with them. And then the third part is that you integrate them into relationships, to jobs, to, you know, all the other stuff. So the stabilization first, Mm -hmm. and then processing the trauma, and then the integration. And of course, that's going to look different for everybody, because some people are, you know, they move swiftly through it. And some people, they, they have multiple injuries. Yes. And trauma is an injury. And so they may have to do that same thing with another thing. And multiple injuries over time. So also, when does the treatment take place? So some, I I know I've worked with some survivors that it's been decades since the trauma has happened, but depending on, you know, background, family, access to care, whatever may have been the issues, they weren't able to receive treatment. Now, thankfully, Mm -hmm. human beings are resilient. So mm. thankfully they are able to move forward to some degree on their own. And I'm amazed. Yeah. I have an 80 year old woman and she is just now wow. dealing with the, her trauma, it's a sexual trauma from way to sexual wow. trauma. And then just the injury of not being enough, you know, yes. never being enough abandoned, never, you know, all of that. And so at 80, she's like, girl, I didn't know I could feel <laughs> like this. Wonderful. I love to hear that because it also dispels the myth that therapy is not useful after a certain age. I don't know why there's this myth that life is just, I don't know, that life just is supposed to be, that's it after (laughs) after a certain point. But that that even after eight decades, isn't it amazing that there could be a sense of release, some kind of peace, whatever it may be that can come for her in yeah. the time that she does d- does have left in yeah. her life. And you know, the good thing about this woman is she was, uh, she taught dance. She taught dance and moves. So I'm thinking, oh, she's 80. You know, I'll let her leave me because that's a part of it is I, I teach her the somatic part and I let her yeah. leave me. And I was so tired after that. It's all over the <laughs> internet, but I was like, God. okay, can we rest? And she's like, no, now we got to move and move and move. And I was like, good. One wonderful, but but so as you said, our institution, you know, everyone is made differently. We have personality factors, mm-hmm. we have cognitive yes. factors, we have developmental, emotional kind of factors. Then we have, you know, just the different identities that intersect, and then access to care. And then when uh, Peter Levine developed that that river of tolerance, uh, and then he developed that. Um, the uh, window of tolerance as well. And so in the river, you get, you go down the river, I'm going, I'm going. And then all of a sudden you get stuck by trauma. Now, some of us are able to like, just keep bumping against it, bumping against Mm -hmm. it. But then we realize with treatment, I can go around. But the window of tolerance says you're able to take stuff, take stuff. But then when you get beat down, you can't take anymore. You're Mm -hmm. either hypervigilant 
where you just jump at everything or hypovigilant. Yeah. And the way to improve that, to have, have the resilience is to start to breathe, start to relax, start to notice when it happens. And then that window is able to open again. So that window of tolerance is so different for everybody. Some people just don't, don't even respond. They know how to just keep a pushing, keep a pushing. Um, yeah. And then others of us don't. So each of us is going to be different. Mm-hmm. That's why treatment is so different. You know, right. what happens? And each response is unique to trauma. So there's some people have a belief, well, oh, well, how could they go to work the next day? But when I did early in my career, when I did um, sexual assault advocacy work, I saw all different kinds of responses. Some people went to work the next day because autopilot kicked in and there had to be some sense for them of like normalcy. So they kept moving, you know, that may be that detachment and dissociation. Like, you know, we have fight flight, but then we learn there's freeze, you know, and that detachment becomes a survival mechanism. Other people may laugh, you know, and some folks may say, well, how can they laugh if this terrible thing has happened? Because it's a nervous laughter. That may be their way of trying to like calm and soothe themselves. I'm glad you brought that up because different ways and, you know, Bissell Vandercock does talk about the, the tendency of trauma survivors, sexual trauma survivors to repeat that pattern over and over. Why is she having sex? Why is he having, having sex again? And I said he, because men are sexual um, yes. assaulted as well. And why there is it's the tendency, that compulsion to repeat that pattern so that mm-hmm. they feel safe because that's how they know they feel safe. They haven't learned to feel safe any safe. other mm-hmm. way. So it's so different. I'm so glad you said that is that there that's a part of it is that they might mm-hmm. fight, fight, freeze, but then that tendency to repeat that pattern over and over Mm -hmm. and not know boundaries and put themselves in situations that's a part of the the trauma response yes the trauma response right and we see that early too with childhood sexual trauma so when a child is sexualized early and then later adolescence or early um adulthood there can be what is viewed as promiscuity, but again, it's a part of that pattern. You know, when one has been exposed to sexualization, when the brain is not prepared and ready for it, it's repeating, as you said, that pattern. Those, mm-hmm. And then those who are in older stages of life, adults, sometimes it still may be trying to take power and control exactly. because during the assault, there wasn't a level of power of control. So now it's like, try to assert power and control as much as they can in consensual type of sexual encounters. Yeah, a lot of anxiety going on, trying to control the situation, be yeah. making sure that there's no doubt about the situation. Wonderful. Wonderful and, stuff. Th- and thank you for highlighting and saying, yes, I said men, because oftentimes, yes, there is more talking about sexual assault or sexual advocacy for women. But yes, we understand that the numbers are higher for boys in terms of um, sexual trauma. And it may even be higher because we know due to stigma that yeah. most of sexual abuse and sexual assaults are underreported because yes. of, of not wanting to you know, be re-victimized as well as going through on trial in terms of not being believed about what happened. So yes, we do want to recognize that men are also survivors of sexual child abuse and uh, sexual assault. Yes, most definitely. So that's a good segue into, we've got a few minutes left. Tell us a little bit about your specific work as a sexual assault advocate. So it's so interesting. My first client in the Navy, um, in the Navy, like I said, I was a medic 
and uh, you can have a collateral duty. And mine was a drug and alcohol counselor. So I got to go to drug and alcohol counselor school, Miramar, California. Yay. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be treating alcoholism. I'm going to be doing that because it ran in my family. I knew it. I wasn't. And, and I knew it. But the first three clients that I had. So what happened? I was drinking, I was sexual assault. I was drinking and I was sexual assault. I was drinking and I was sexual assault. So I started to look at trauma and and this mm. alcohol thing, trauma and this alcohol thing. So I started way back then. That was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and just from there, I just fell in love with working with that. And the advocacy piece, now I do it at WashU, but I've worked with, with the YWCA since I lived mm-hmm. in California. And I, I did it in Guam. I did it all over. The advocacy piece is giving people a voice that might not have a voice. It's empowering yes. them. It's meeting mm-hmm. them at the hospital if, if they need somebody mm-hmm. at the hospital. It's giving them a, the resources that they need. It's teaching yes. them how to breathe. It's, it's, it's coming, having them come in for counseling. So advocacy mm-hmm. piece looks like a lot of different things. It's providing the empowerment that that individual needs when, they, when they're at their weakest when they feel like they don't have a choice. And um, I just, I love doing it because it uh, you can connect with an, another person and attune with another person. And it's wonderful to see them smile at the end and say, you know, I'll be all right today. You know, I'll be okay today. So that they see past what happened to them. Yes. And they see that they're still living, they're still breathing, mm-hmm. able to move on with their life at some point, maybe not today. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if that's what you meant. What was there something- yeah. Whatever you would like to share in terms of your work as a sexual assault advocate. We talk a lot about the color barrier and, you know, you know, uh, African-American women, BIPOC women are the most underrepresented and untreated in this area because historically we know that Mm. Rosa Parks was the first sexual assault advocate. Reese Taylor was that case in the twenties and Mm thirties. Assaulted by eight, six men, and nobody believed her. They, they drug her family. Yes. The NAACP said their their best person, and her first job was not sitting down and working for the NAACP. But she was an advocate, a sexual yes. People didn't know that she was an advocate for men and women. The men yes. were abused, and she she gave them support and helped them through. And for the women, she helped them tell yes. their stories. So advocacy is about helping those, you know, helping individuals walk across whatever it is that they need to cross to, so they can tell their story if they'd like, mm-hmm. deal with their story if they'd like. Uh, yes. So Reese Taylor's story, look at it. It's on. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm familiar. Unfortunately, so much historical traumatic events and this is where having a shared history when you have a counselor a therapist psychologist mental health professional of color it helps to know that someone is aware of that shared experience but also has a lived experience that in addition to all of your achievements your accolades your competency that there is that lived mm-hmm. experience um piece so yes I er, early in my career back when I did practicum in undergrad undergrad I did some sexual assault advocate work and and it really was powerful work as you said at the most fragile part of a person's life and it it lets you know that sometimes just being there and holding space yeah that's it and holding someone being present there and that isn't sometimes it's not with words it's not with with touch it's just with presence Mm-hmm. And that helps to build hope. So thank you for all of the work that you um, 
I are doing to, with that. I wanted to mention Diamond Diva. That group here is uh, uh, addresses women of women men of color who have been sexually assaulted, and put okay. that on your list to call them up, people. Yes. You know, go volunteer, donate money to them because okay. we know about YWCA, we know about Safe Connections, we know. Yes. But we don't know about Diamond about Diva. Diamond Diva. Thank you for the shout out to Diamond Diva. And, and this is where we have to build, correct? And also economically, we see, as you said, even with nonprofit, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great nonprofits out there, but when they're majority owned, sometimes there's more economics, you know, yeah. support that's there. So we yeah. definitely need to do the grassroots support as well. So we have time probably for one more question before we have to wrap okay. up. So Tell us a little bit about um, Emotional Emancipation Circles, or EEC. Um, can you educate our, our um, audience just a bit about the process, and we okay. can give them um, places that they can find that online to get more information? Yeah, just uh, first Google Emotional Emancipation Circle St. Louis. We, got, we can get it done here. Association of Black Psychologists and the Community Healing Network came and trained many of us um, in 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. with the unrest and the death and the killing of, of, of Michael Brown. And yes. emotional emancipation has three, four different parts to it. First is the, is the, the collectiveness, helping people understand that as a collective. Now, it is for African-Americans, by African-Americans, to and yes. with Americans. There's an affirming piece to it. There's an mm-hmm. education piece to it. And guess what? There's a somatic piece to it. Those are the parts that go along with it. And the circle is never ending and never beginning. You, we are all a part of the circle, the lived experience mm-hmm. because of our ancestors. And so the circle, you learn about yourself, you learn about your ancestors, and you learn about the people in the group. You learn to trust yourself, you learn to trust others. But most of all, you, have, you learn to demystify those myths about not being good enough, Mm-hmm. Not being enough, not being anything else, but the fabulous person that you are. That and then the a, other part, the training, the training part is, is the part that is more feeling part than training part. And they're mm-hmm. held, uh, you know, it can be anywhere for two hours to three hours. It could be a continuous group. It could be a one-time mm-hmm. group. It could be an all men's group or all mm-hmm. women's group or a mixed group, but it's a group for us. Thank you. And and that's here local in St. Louis, but the Association of Black Psychologists is a national professional and advocacy organization. So you can go to the abci.org website and maybe look to where you are locally to see if it's there. If not, you can look online to see what might be available virtually online. And I love that you talked about learning about yourself and people in the group and learning to trust because Unfortunately, you know, slavery has messed us up with that because when we are put against each other, old versus young, Mm -hmm. straight hair versus kinky hair, light versus dark. Yes, we have internalized that oppression. And unfortunately, it still impacts us today that when we have internalized that that hate, that inferiority, that now that gets projected onto our brothers and our sisters. So we definitely need space where we can just love each other, trust each other, be truthful with each other and learn to move forward because we won't be able to um, build. Not at all. And sustain until we can trust ourselves first. 
Mm-hmm. And then exactly. trust then each other. And that's how the community grows. So sometimes we always want to see this change that's happening externally, right? But mm-hmm. we definitely have we have to start with self. If we start with self, we're in the best place. Because I, I now we're modeling, right? We're modeling for modeling other people. behavior. Yeah, and they can see it. I had to go along with that. I had two resources that I want to make sure. I'm in both of these groups, and I need you okay. guys to join these groups. The first one is Girl Trek. Girl Trek St. Louis. Trek. Join, okay. get in there. Is to combat obesity, depression, okay. mental health in Black women. We walk. Just get up and do a solo. Just go on the website and join. Okay. Girl Trek St. Louis, just Girl Trek. And if you put in Girl Trek, and then the other one is Black Girls Run. You know, Black you can run to the run. TV, you can run to the uh, to the bathroom. It doesn't matter where you run, but it's a group of women that get together. Mm-hmm. Now, some people run like 10 seconds. Some people run for like two hours. It's Wonderful. a way and a source of us getting together and combating mental health and addressing our health that go along with the collective part, like EEC, like EEC. And we know there's a correlation between obesity and um, depression, it's like chicken and egg. So for some, you know, they become obese, which predisposes them to depression. Some people are depressed, which is, you know, predisposing them to obesity, you know, and again, our history in terms of the slave diet and that nutrition has put us in a place that is laid the foundation for all of those um, physical health disparities. So I love that you've you've shared more. So you've got the movement and the somatization for the therapy, and then you have movement just within your own time and space. So all of these has, have been very good resources. We um, are just about out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? Uh, call me. Contact me. (laughs) (laughs) So we have had a wonderful, um, you know, dynamic discussion. There's a lot that listeners have have learned. If anyone would like to contact you, how can they reach out to you? Uh, www.gsmiththerapy.com. And you can just ask a question there, or request an appointment, appointment, or if we want to do an a EEC group, we can get together. Do we anything? Any question that you have? And my email is pretty easy. It's all gsmith two 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 at aol.com. Thank you. Oh, we're old school. I've got AOL too. So thank you so much. Once again, thank you to Dr. Gladys Smith for appearing on New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection on Intentional Talk Radio Network. Join us on second and fourth Sundays at 6 p.m. Our next show will be July uh, 10th. Thank you to our listeners across the globe. For those who weren't able to listen today, uh, this will be available on the itrnradio.com website, as well as on all podcast platforms. And remember, a healthy mind and healthy body is key to longevity. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This was awesome. We will definitely have to have you back for us to um, continue the discussion. And maybe we will bring talk a little bit more focused on racial trauma the next time and do something during the show related to that. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.